It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This story is a warning about what can go wrong when we don't take social media threats seriously. I'm Peter Singer. This is Like War, Part 6, The Fight Comes Home. We begin on January 6, 2021. Standing outside of the White House, President Trump has just given his latest speech railing against the 2020 election results. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Quinta Jurassic is a fellow at the Brookings Institution and a senior editor at Lawfare. January 6th did not come out of nowhere. President Trump had been going around saying that the election had been stolen from him, you know, hinting that January 6th, when Congress assembled to certify the electoral vote, would be, you know, a big and exciting day and that his supporters should gather in Washington, D.C. then. President Donald Trump says he will continue to fight the results of the 2020 presidential election. Congress meets in just hours to certify the votes. And as we've reported, there are lawmakers who've gone on record saying they will contest the Electoral College results. As a direct result of those comments by Trump, there was a lot 
of conversation on social media among supporters of Trump about what should happen on that day. And when I say social media, I mean major platforms that listeners have probably heard of, like Twitter and Facebook, but I also mean platforms that are part of what's come to be called the alt-tech ecosystem, sort of alternative platforms for people with fringe political views, usually on the far right. So sites like Gab and Parler, and on those sites, there was a lot of conversation. People were planning to assemble in Washington, D.C., how the election had been stolen from Trump and that, you know, patriots needed to take a stand. We're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. Thousands of his supporters stream out across the National Mall. We're going to walk down anyone you want, but I think right here we're going to walk down to the Capitol. Others march down Constitution and Pennsylvania Avenues straight towards the U.S. Capitol. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Some, including members of various far-right extremist groups like the Proud Boys, have already gathered on the Capitol lawn. And in the middle of those merging crowds, Tim Gione is live streaming. The vibe transcends the stream, that's right. He's traveled more than 2,000 miles to be there, all the way from Scottsdale, Arizona and he's brought with him 16,000 of his loyal fans. This was far from his first controversial live stream. Gione was more commonly known by the pseudonym Baked Alaska. Because if you're not here, you should be here. But if not, you're here supporting in the stream, so thank you. I love all of you. Really good to be here. He had previously gained notoriety for various outrageous stunts that he posted online. During the early stages of the pandemic, for example, you could find him on the right-wing friendly streaming platform DLive. There he made a show of confronting store clerks while maskless and starting fights at bars. Those videos hadn't gone viral beyond the reach of the platform, but filming the insurrection would. Gionet made his way toward the Capitol building with other Trump supporters. Soon they faced off against the Capitol Police, toppling barriers and then battling with them. Hitting, pushing down police officers, even beating one of them with an American flagpole. And GNA streamed it all. Ever the consummate live streamer, he checked in on his audience every few minutes. As users typed their comments in real time, he would read them aloud. Some rewarded him with lemons. DLive's currency that content creators can convert into real money. Yo, let's get some ACAF in the chat. While his online audience encouraged the crowd onward, asking them to mace the police officers, the rest of the world watched in shock and horror. The rioters soon gained access to the most secure parts of the Capitol building. Some wandered about, stealing items to commemorate the event. Some destroyed offices, and one even defecated on the floor of the home of U.S. democracy, smearing feces on the wall. Others searched for the vice president and members of Congress, seeking to take them hostage. They even thought to come with zip ties to bind their hands. They missed seizing these leaders by just a minute, 
steered in the wrong direction by a quick-thinking police officer they were chasing down a hall. Ultimately, five people, including a police officer, would die in the chaos of the day. Law enforcement agencies had clearly been caught off guard by the rush of the insurrectionists, but their presence shouldn't have been a surprise. Because all of the lies that had fomented January 6 and all of the calls for violence during it had been out in the open at sites like thedonald.win. Over 80% of the top posts about the election outcome featured calls for violence with debates on whether members of Congress should be killed by hanging or guillotine. But well before all of this, and even before President Trump's speech directing them to go to the Capitol that morning, social media had already been weaponized to not just direct, but motivate that violence. My co-author Emerson Brooking was one of the many experts who tracked this campaign and witnessed the roots of the Capitol insurrection starting to take hold. I was part of an organization called the Election Integrity Partnership. And I remember it was back in August and September of 2020 when we began to see that hashtag emerging, Stop the Steal, where conservative activists would say that illegal immigrants were being recruited for early voting or that poll workers were getting special instructions to exclude Trump votes. But after election night, Stop the Steal morphed into something much bigger. Trump took to the stage, and he said, contrary to all the evidence, that he had won the election. And that was like pouring gasoline on a fire. The Stop the Steal movement exploded. And the next day, there was a Facebook group, which became the fastest growing in Facebook's history. Within 24 hours of President Trump's election defeat, millions of Facebook users began organizing demonstration, sharing stories that supported the false claims of a stolen election. When Facebook eventually shut the page down, it only added more fuel to the fire. There's been a fair amount of studies showing that Facebook is set up in a way that content that is particularly extreme, that provokes a strong emotional reaction, often a negative emotional reaction, does particularly well. You know, that people click on it, that they engage with it. And Facebook's algorithm is designed to privilege that kind of content. For diehard Stop the Steal supporters, it reinforced the idea that there was a growing conspiracy to silence them. They moved to other websites where they could continue to motivate and plan. YouTube was sort of the ground zero for the Stop the Steal movement. Because even as a lot of the planning for violence went underground, it was YouTube where this movement really festered and where it continued to draw strength and momentum and where... All of these disparate beliefs, all these adjacent communities kind of combined in believing that there was going to be one moment of truth and that it was going to come on January 6th. The intent to commit violence was always there. As the leader of the Stop the Steal movements foreshadowed on Parler, quote, if DC escalates, so do we. I think it's useful here to put yourself in the shoes of just a casual Trump supporter. In the weeks leading up to the election, you would have seen Stop the Steal mentioned more and more frequently. Then that night, when it seemed that things were turning against Trump, you would have heard a speech from the president himself 
telling you that he had won and that anything else was lies. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. So our goal now is to ensure the integrity for the good of this nation. This is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We will win this, and we, as far as I'm concerned, we already have won it. So I just want to thank... You sincerely believed that Trump had won the election because everyone you believed and trusted was telling you that it was the case. And everyone whom you'd been taught for the last four years to view as enemies of the state were telling you something else. That was the momentum that could carry someone from casually sharing Stop the Steal stories a few weeks before the election to being there on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol attacking Capitol Hill police officers and trying to enter the building to forcefully reinstall Trump as president. You will see just an endless amount of social media posts. People are posting on Facebook, here's a photograph of my guns that I'm taking with me as I drive across the country to Washington, D.C. But there's also just an incredible trove of information, a lot of which was available to you know anyone with an internet connection. All you had to do was you know load up Parler that signaled that the sixth was potentially going to be really, really concerning. For weeks, Trump supporters organized in online forums like Parler and Telegram. Leaders of the Stop the Steal campaign publicly posted their plans in December 2020. And the weeks leading up to the attack, users studied the layout of the streets surrounding the Capitol. They shared a map of the complex's tunnels. They had tactical plans in place to make sure they could communicate. From earpieces and hand signals to cell phone apps that they could use like walkie-talkies. They planned to come dressed in military gear and helmets, and armed with everything from stun guns and mace to baseball bats. Like so many others who had spiraled from casual Trump supporters to insurrectionists, Tim Gianne had already started his journey years before. He had been raised in Anchorage, Alaska by devout Christian parents. Then he left home to go to college in Los Angeles to study film and marketing. When he graduated, he got a job doing social media marketing for a few record companies. And then he decided to take a shot at his own career in music. Yeah. But first, he needed a stage name. He was from Alaska, and he liked to smoke weed. And so with that deep level of creativity, the character Baked Alaska, <laughs> Baked Alaska was born. He started rapping under the pseudonym, putting out songs like Alaska Vacation, I Climb Mountains, and Bull Moose Trapping. But his career didn't take off like he had hoped. So the failed rapper made a play to get back into social media marketing. He got a job at the digital media company BuzzFeed, and he did well. His main focus was pop culture, but as BuzzFeed gradually expanded from entertainment to politics, so did GNA. He wore a MAGA hat to the office. He got a silhouette of Donald Trump tattooed onto his arm. A few months later, he resigned from BuzzFeed and took a job managing a college tour for Milo Yiannopoulos, a notorious internet troll and right-wing provocateur who had worked for Breitbart. 
Milo was himself known for elevating members of the alt-right and neo-Nazi movements, even down to the details of using anti-Semitic passwords on his email. Milo already had an online following in the hundreds of thousands. He had connections, connections that got GNA special access to the Republican National Convention. Friends, delegates, and fellow Americans, I humbly and gratefully accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States. And that's where GNA first met the future president. Trump even signed the tattoo that he'd had inked on his arm months earlier. But just like all his previous gigs, GNA's relationship with Milo didn't last very long. Back on his own, he released a song called MAGA Anthem. He launched a viral social media campaign to try and force Starbucks employees to write the name Trump on coffee cups. Go to Starbucks, Operation Trump Cup, hashtag Trump Cup. If they don't, if they refuse to write Trump on your Starbucks cup, I want you taking video. His descent into extremism came to a head with a series of tweets accusing Jewish people of secretly running the media. But his trolling and his anti-Semitic rhetoric soon boosted his profile among the more extreme Trump supporters. And in August 2017, he was added to the feature speakers list at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. At the event, he stood alongside right-wing militia members and self-proclaimed white nationalists. Protesters marched with Confederate and Nazi flags. Noted white supremacist and Pepe the Frog fan Richard Spencer was also in attendance. The event quickly turned violent. Protesters clashed with counter-protesters. Dozens were injured. And then a far-right extremist deliberately rammed a car into an innocent crowd killing Heather Heyer and injuring another 35 people. In the center of the violent crowd, spewing hateful rhetoric, Baked Alaska was live streaming. Keep streaming me, someone. I'm, I'm streaming. So get someone to stream me. I got it, I got it, Baked. Even as he himself was down by pepper spray, crying for milk to relieve the pain, he had a one-track mind. Just like his earlier online stunts, Baked Alaska faced almost zero consequences afterwards, despite participating in what police called an unlawful assembly in Charlottesville. The following years, Baked Alaska would yo-yo back and forth across political movements, from spouting out white nationalist slogans to trying to market himself as a reformed former racist. He even wrote and self-published a book entitled Meme Magic Secrets Revealed. It would be removed from Amazon for copyright violation for having Pepe the Frog on the cover. Fast forward to the Capitol insurrection in January of 2021. As rioters stormed the Congress, Baked Alaska live streamed from inside the building for 27 minutes. He encouraged other rioters not to leave the premises. He entered private offices. When asked by police to leave, 
He falsely identified himself as a member of the media. Yet at the end of the day, he wasn't arrested. He walked out on his own. For many watching at home, it seemed that people like Baked Alaska would get away totally scot-free. But fortunately, the FBI wasn't making the same mistake in the aftermath. Ten days after the attack, GNA was arrested in Houston, Texas. Now, he faces charges of violent and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds and knowingly entering a restricted building without lawful authority. At this point, more than 500 others have been charged. It's one of the largest criminal investigations ever in American history. Hundreds of thousands of digital tips have been submitted, and they're still coming. While the insurrectionists use social media to help organize and document their attack, this time it was used against them. Their weapon became the thing that caught them. But the most full circle moment? In nearly 90% of the arrests, the charges were based at least in part on the person's own social media accounts. One of those accounts was of a New York man who bragged on the dating app Bumble that he'd been in the Capitol during the riot. His match notified the FBI. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? 
so he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Not everyone was dumb enough to tattle on themselves, though. For those cases, investigators are relying on facial recognition software, images from surveillance cameras, social media posts, and live news coverage are used to find a possible match among the FBI's massive photo databases. In other cases still, they've subpoenaed cell phone service companies to find out whether someone's phone was inside the Capitol on January 6. It's an impressive step forward for a federal government that too long looked the other way at domestic extremism, especially from the far right. It's also an important reminder that there are repercussions for our behaviors online and in person. But the response in the aftermath of the insurrection hardly compensates for the five lives lost at the Capitol or the irreparable damage done to our democracy. One thing I'm certain of, there had not been a successful attack on the U.S. Capitol for some 200 years until that moment that it was overrun on January 6, 2021. I'm certain that it will be much less than 200 years before another such attack takes place. The successful attack on the U.S. Capitol transferred a lot of power to these groups and these individuals because they could claim that they had overtaken one of the most important symbols of democracy in the world. Now, we can arrest these people now, we can charge them, we can take steps to deter these sorts of attacks from happening again. But the fact remains that for part of the population, they have become heroes. In far-right media circles, they have become people to look up to and to idolize. And I'm sure that years from now, people who were part of that attack will continue to brag about it. And I'm also sure for the next generation of far-right extremists, they will want nothing more than to follow in the footsteps of the people who attacked the U.S. Capitol because they showed it could be done. The afterlife of January 6th in political memory, I think, is proving to be particularly powerful. We cannot leave the violence of January 6th and its causes uninvestigated. The American people deserve the full and open testimony of every person with knowledge of the planning and preparation for January 6th. There is currently, as, as we're speaking, a investigation going on in the House with a select committee investigating what really happened on January 6th. On that day, I participated in the defense of the United States Capitol from an armed mob, an armed mob. I was at risk of being stripped of and killed with my own firearm as I heard chants of kill him with his own gun. He kicked me in my chest as we went to the ground. I was able to retain my baton again, but I ended up on my hands and knees and blind. 
after giving CPR to one of the rioters who breached the Capitol in an effort to save her life, that I finally had a chance to let my own family know that I was alive. Within the Republican Party, there's been a sort of a growing movement on the fringe, which is itself a growing portion of the Republican Party, of sort of seeing January 6th as a an act of justice, you know, that it was a just thing to do to be patriots and storm the Capitol and try to defend Trump. I don't think anybody in America, I think even your viewers understand what a sham this committee is and how politically driven. There was no insurrection and to call it an insurrection, in my opinion, is a bold-faced lie. You know, if you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. It's worth saying none of this was immediate. In the immediate aftermath of January 6th, Trump sort of hedged, but by and large, there was condemnation from both sides of the political aisle across the spectrum. Today was a dark day in the history of the United States Capitol. We condemn the violence that took place here in the strongest possible terms. Those who performed these reprehensible acts cannot be called protesters. These were rioters and insurrectionists, goons and thugs, domestic terrorists. The United States Senate will not be intimidated. We will not be kept out of this chamber by thugs, mobs, or threats. We will not bow to lawlessness or intimidation. You see members of Congress, like, for example, Representative Matt Gates and Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, treating people who have been detained pre-trial for their participation in January 6th, treating them as political prisoners and sort of having stunts where they go to the jail and try to see them. You see Trump uh, making Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was shot by a police officer and died while trying to storm the Capitol, into a martyr figure. Trump said in a statement he had spoken to the mother and husband of Ashley Babbitt, the rioter who was shot and killed by a U.S. Capitol Police officer as she tried to crawl through a broken window near the Speaker's lobby on January 6th. My team and I at the Digital Forensic Research Lab, we spent the morning tracking uh, the activity in D.C., jumping from live stream to live stream, following these prominent far-right media personalities with whom we were so familiar. But there came a moment later in the afternoon where there was a lull in activity. And I was working only about 10 blocks from where all this was taking place. So I took an opportunity to just walk down as far as I could just to try to understand the, the mood and outlook of the people who were doing this thing. And I I got as far as Freedom Plaza, which is still quite a ways from the U.S. Capitol. And I stood there for a while and just watched. What really struck me was how festive the atmosphere was. I just watched these horrible things online that these people were doing. But then when I actually got there, people were streaming back from the U.S. Capitol They had grins on their face. They were talking excitedly. It was like they just attended the biggest party of their lifetime. They thought that they had done something truly incredible, that they had lit the match of revolution, that they'd done their duty. No one then seemed scared or regretful. So when I'm asked, 
What is the impact at the end of the day of disinformation? I think about the few moments I spent in downtown D.C. on January 6th, where I watched people streaming back from the Capitol that they just looted with smiles on their face. I watched a guy with a baseball bat strolling back and forth, screaming for an invisible Antifa to come out and fight him. And I think about the extraordinary delusion that these people were under, how they'd been led for years down a dark pathway so far from reality. And this was the ultimate consequence of the flood of misinformation and manipulation and falsehood, which Trump had first rode to his electoral victory and then emphasized again and again over years that journalists were the enemy, that Democrats and liberals hated the country, that Black Lives Matter protesters were Antifa and should be shot in the streets. This was what the damage of disinformation looked like, an attack on the U.S. Capitol, an attack on the foundations of American democracy. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. I think we should have gone on in and yanked the, our senators out by the hair of the head and drug them out and said, no more. I absolutely uh, stand behind 100% what happened here today. I think it's terrible how this election was stolen. Well, I mean, but what does this achieve, this violence? Uh, are we violent? There's no violence. Nobody has been violent. Protest. People have been hurt. This attack will likely inspire others. In the future, we need to act before a dangerous internet campaign becomes an insurrection. We need a new model for how to deal with the viral forces of misinformation, disinformation, and hate that have so troubled our real world. That's next time on Like War. This is a production of iHeart Podcasts, Graphic Audio, and Goat Rodeo. Kara Schillen, that's me, is the series lead producer. This episode is just one of a seven-part series. Find other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to dive deeper into the work of P.W. Singer and Emerson Brooking, you can access the full audiobook, Like War, on which this series is based, wherever you get your audiobooks. Writing and editing from Kara Schillen. Production assistance from Isabel Kirby McGowan. Senior producers are Ian Enright and Megan Nadolsky. Please share this series with the hashtag LikeWar to find other conversations about the series. Thank you for listening. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.